that is not not actually Herb Alpert and the Two on a Brass. That is a, a mediocre karaoke version of Joe Dassin's Champs Elysees. Uh, which melody uh, we play here? Because this is the first ever, I believe, the first ever international version, international edition of Fangraphs Audio. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Uh, my guest on this edition of Dave Cameron. Coming, uh, my guest on, on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is. Fangraphs Manager Dave Cameron coming to you from the United States while your host comes to you from Paris, France. This is this is how it is. Uh, um, as he does usually, Dave Cameron analyzes all of something on Fangraphs Audio. This week, uh, with two weeks or maybe even just a week left, it appears a week left in the in the Major League Baseball season, uh, we have some concerns. We have uh, end of season awards and we have playoff odds. We have a conversation with Josh Donaldson. Uh, on the first, uh, on the first tip, uh, to, to borrow a phrase from TLC, and in the second instance, we have the uh, Cleveland Indians baseball team. Uh, why is there? How's their pitching staff so good? How did it get that way? That seems to be something we should consider. Uh, we do, we do all that. We probably do more uh, because Dave Cameron, uh, he can't stop talking. As a fact, actually, he's got. I believe it's called logoria. It's a serious illness, and he should uh, probably look into it. But it's not, fa- it's not fatal or anything, so he's fine. Uh, and uh, so don't worry about him so far as that's concerned. Worry about him for a number of other reasons. Anyway, uh, let's do that. Let's uh, let's get let's get to this edition of Fang- it's Fangraphs Audio. It features Fangraphs managing editor Dave Cameron live on tape from uh, the United States. Uh, and uh, and this episode begins right now. Just eating some cheese. Yeah. You're eating cheese at the moment. Uh, yeah, mostly. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we picked nice. up some Gruyere from the local Carrefour, which is a uh, yeah. Do you know about that? It, well, I, I know what Gruyere is. It actually makes a pretty good uh, grilled cheese sandwich. Yeah, that's gonna do that for you. That's when. Um, yeah, that yeah. sounds decadent, Dave Cameron. You have you experimented with that? I have. My wife is a, a big fan of grilled cheese sandwiches, and uh, she doesn't like you know American or you know processed cheeses. So we've uh, we've played around with more expensive grilled cheese sandwiches. Yeah, and then Gruyere was one of the. No, actually, I'll, I will say this. Uh, I will say that um, probably France is a good place to get cheese, but the Trader Joe's Gruyere. There's like a there's a nice Gruyere actually at Trader Joe's. Yeah, Trader Joe's has a really good cheese selection. It's probably the best thing about Trader Joe's. Yeah, well, and the uh, the prices. Right. Well, yeah. Right. They have good good cheese at reasonable prices. Yeah. Uh, actually, my my favorite cheese uh, story is uh, I bought some goat cheese because <laughs> you got a make, cheese. You have a, uh, you're gonna give us a cheese story. This is your favorite cheese story. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's a che- cheese pricing grocery store story. All right. Uh, so I I bought some goat cheese at Costco, and you know. Uh, you can get a lot of stuff at Costco, uh, like large quantities, and uh, so I think I got like I don't know, 20 ounces or something. Like it was two large blocks of goat cheese for like six dollars. And then uh, I was wandering through my local Harris Theater one day and saw that they were selling like basically a thumb size, like two ounces of, of goat cheese for about seven dollars. And I wanted to like take a picture of the difference <laughs> between what they sell for seven dollars and what Costco sells, and like send it to their CEO and ask him to like resign in shame. And were the would you say the for you the quality of cheeses was uh, similar enough? 
I, I think the Costco cheese is, well, I didn't buy the $7 thumb up goat cheese. I've had Harris Cedars goat cheese. It's, you know, goat cheese is goat cheese for the most part. It yeah. tastes, you know, it's tangy, it's salty, it's, it's the same thing. It's pretty good. It's a good, it's a good sort of cheese. Yeah, it, yeah. it needs, <clears throat> it needs some help. I wouldn't have it on its own. Uh, goat cheese. Yeah. yeah, I think that's, that's fair yeah. to say. That's fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Harris Peters, is that like a, uh, was this like a fine? Um, Harris Teeter. Harris Teeter. Harris Teeter. Okay, and that's this is yeah. something one can find in the South, fine goods and foods and sort of thing, fine foods? Yeah, it, it's like a Safeway or, you know, it's like a, a run-of-the-mill. It's not like, I mean, they charge higher prices than they should, but they're not like, it's not a Whole Foods. I mean, it's just a run-of-the-mill grocery store. Okay, all right. <clears throat> We've established a couple things already. Uh, I'm going to say, first of all, uh, quality is looking good so far for our first uh, intercontinental transmission. Uh Second thing I'll say is... You mean the quality of the uh, technology, not the quality not of the Not the content. No, not the content <laughs> at all. No, don't yeah. worry about that. Uh, <laughs> same as always. Very good. And, um, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's... Um, the quality's good now. I think it'll remain good. It might... Um, possibility the Internet will just shut off. It does that sometimes. It just stops working. Um, it goes on strike. Okay. Well, there's also... There's also the possibility that I will have to chase my dog at some point. We have a new uh, uh, electric fence that she has learned to like and use, and so I'm letting her be outside for the podcast. Oh, okay. She might decide to, like, dig up the yard. You might hear me just, like, start yelling. I probably am not yelling at you. It's possible I will be yelling at you, but most likely I'll be yelling at the dog. um, Actually, uh, this is something that might um, appeal to the stats-oriented, as I know, and this may be the case with your electric fence, too. Um, I'm pretty sure, let's see. Uh, oh yeah, my uh, my brother-in-law. Uh, he and his wife they own an electric fence for a pair of pugs that they have. And if I'm not mistaken, um, um, whomever whoever is responsible for maintaining or operating the electric fence, they keep stats on uh, on the same. And uh, and uh, for their two dogs, they keep stats on the the amount of times that the dog in question. Uh, set off the electric fence, and they have one. Yeah. <laughs> they have one smarter dog uh, that is only set off maybe once or twice over the course of like the first month, it, which is to say he got the point. The other one, <laughs> it was like once a day. Um, <laughs> it was just a dog that well, didn't was not familiar are, with Pavlov. We are blessed with a fair, fair, fairly smart dog. We got it. Uh, she she started wearing the collar. We've been doing some training just with like the beeping, but she started wearing the collar last Wednesday. About a half an hour after she started wearing the collar, she broke out and ran down the street. And I was like, this is going to be a miserable failure. But uh, she hasn't even really tested it since. She's learned the barriers, and she doesn't she doesn't get zapped at all. She hears the little beeping warning sound and mm-hmm. runs the other way. So, right. Uh, our dog is, uh, you know, of of high intelligence, yeah. uh, uh, at least relative to other, other puppies. Other dogs. Now, now when, okay, so once the dog breaks through the electric fence, does, does it yeah. continue to feel the shock, or is it done at this point? No, it, it's basically just a little like uh, electric um, line, and so when you're near that line, like very very close to it, it will give a little buzz. But once okay. you get past it, you're in the free. So if if the dog is smart enough to uh, you know realize that it is a very temporary amount of pain that is keeping them inside, they can just go uh, you know right. make that trade if they wanted to. But most of them, uh, and, and ours specifically, seem to understand the concept of of this is my yard. I'm going to stay in it. Okay. All right. Um... You know, uh, Dave Cameron, usually uh, I'm a purveyor of um, all-pro uh, or all-star um, 
Um, <laughs> what, what are these? What are these things where you go from one topic to the next? What are those things called? Uh, you know those things where you go, you like finish one topic, you want to go to the next, and uh, it's a. You know what those are called, Cal? What? You go from one topic to the next. What's that called? Yeah. Well, we'll figure out the name of it anyway. I usually purveyor of all-star versions of those. This is not one of the. This is clearly not one of those. But uh, let's talk about baseball. Is my point. <laughs> that's that was the longest segue in history. Yeah, segue. That's the exact word. That's the precise word I was looking for. And maybe even French. Who knows? Here's the point. Segue to baseball. Very good. Uh, let's talk about playoff odds. I've I've been perusing them uh, over the course of the past yeah. week, even though I was officially uh, on vacation, um, en vacances, as it were. And uh, um, so a couple things are happening. One is, uh, and this is, uh, you might feel justified to some degree, because I did witness a, uh, a Twitter uh, fight between you and Jonah Carey um, with, with regarded the, uh, the importance of um, uh, schedule, um, remaining schedule on the playoff race. And that seems to have been justified to some degree because Cleveland just played Houston for four games and I think won all of them. Uh, yeah, right. The Indians have basically uh, been playing minor league teams for last week and they're like 40-0 you know, since since this little cream puff schedule of theirs has materialized. And uh, right, I think, you know, I don't know that I would characterize Jonah and I's discussion as a fight. It was no, more yeah. <laughs> uh, me, me putting him in his place because he was wrong. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, I'll, re- I'll make sure to relay that to, to, uh, to no, Mr. Jonah. Uh, if we hadn't had a fight yet, I'm trying to start one. Yeah, no, I see what's happening now. Yeah. No, but yeah, right. uh, your point basically is yeah. schedule doesn't matter. And, and if I'm yeah. not mistaken, that's actually the playoff odds that appear at the site actually uh, strings the schedule is, is hardwired into those. Yeah, right. I mean, it basically looks at the actual teams the team is going to play over the rest of the season and calculates an expected winning percentage against that team. And, uh, and their, so their overall winning percentage going forward is a, is a, um, amalgamation of those individual winning percentages against those teams. So if you have, you know, 15 games against the Astros, your winning percentage is going to be significantly higher than if you have 15 games against the Cardinals. Now, with regard to Cleveland in particular, um, I think that, that my feelings about Corey Kluber have been, uh, you know, well publicized, um, at least in the site. At the same time, I'm curious about um, this, which is that they, they've essentially had the best pitching staff uh, in the major leagues, or say top three, over the course of the last month. And I think it's fair to say that entering the season, that was not the case, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Justin Masterson was very starting to start the season, but he has he has not been with the team for for some time. Um, but uh, Kluber's obviously been quite good. Uh, Danny Salazar has pitched quite well. Um, Ubaldo Jimenez, um, I guess, is the best pitcher, if I'm not mistaken, like the best pitcher in baseball over the last month. And if it's not Ubaldo Jimenez, then it's Scott Casimir. Uh, is there anything I'm wondering? Is there anything about? The way that the, uh, that Cleveland has put together their starting rotation uh, that we can learn from, or is this just a sort of a product of randomness? Uh, probably a little bit of both. I mean, I think the answer to almost every question is always in between the, right. the two polars. Uh, but I think you know what we kind of seen with with uh, Cleveland is that they have bought low on broken pitching, and this is a you know kind of thing that we've been writing about for a few years. I did a presentation at the Sabre conference a few years back on, you know, how formerly broken down pitchers or pitchers we assume to be, you know, at the end of their careers or, you know, too injured to continue, uh, actually produce 
fairly well in terms of return on investment. And, and the Indians have kind of gone in on that strategy of, you know, Abaldo Jimenez was certainly a buy low when Colorado dumped him uh, because they thought he was his mechanics were out of whack and he lost five miles an hour on a fastball and uh, his ERA skyrocketed. So they gave him up for, you know, a couple prospects that haven't turned out. Uh, and Casimir, you know, was out of baseball for several years and pitching in the independent leagues. Uh, you know, I think the Indians have kind of said, we're going to uh, kind of invest in hitting uh, with Carlos Santana and Nick Swisher and Michael Bourne and, uh, you know, as Drupal Cabrera. They've kind of built their core around position players. And with pitching, they've kind of rolled the dice. And it's not a terrible strategy considering the in- inconsistency of pitchers. Now, when you say broken pitchers, is there a way to tell if a pitcher is broken permanently or if he's broken only for the short term, you know, because at a certain point, it might have been uh, reasonable to say uh, Ubaldo, Ubaldo Jimenez, despite the fact that he's been excellent, uh, is not about to be excellent uh, anymore. Um, it might have, it was, it was certainly at some point uh, a reasonable thing to say about Scott Casimir, um, who was gone from baseball for the better part of a year and a half, and who has now returned with a fastball at 90 miles per hour. Uh, what's the sort of what are the indicators that separate those pitchers who um, are broken temporarily versus permanently, or is that an, a, a false dichotomy I've just presented you with? No, I, I don't think anyone knows. I think this is one of the things that's tricky, right? Is like you know we've looked at fastball velocity and we know that fastball velocity has a uh, a pretty significant factor if a pitcher starts to lose a lot of his fastball. But Jimenez has lost a tremendous amount of velocity off his fastball, and he's reinvented himself essentially as a different pitcher who can still get batters out and so i think the the key is understanding uh and this might not be something we can do from the exterior and maybe teams can't even do uh from their proximity understanding whether a pitcher can can make that transformation i mean what we saw with randy johnson throughout his career was rather amazing i mean he was a guy who came up couldn't throw strikes but he threw 101 miles an hour uh and basically lived off his stuff at the end of his career he was throwing 88 and he never walked anyone <laughs> over like a 20-year career he went from one extreme to the other uh that's really kind of a, a hard thing to know without knowing the person knowing their work ethic uh knowing their intelligence level and maybe even knowing those things that might not be predictable but i think from the outside, it's certainly tough to look at a pitcher and say, he looks to be broken now, he can't ever fix himself. Uh, maybe when a pitcher is 50, we can say that, or, you know, in his mid-40s or something. Like, there's some, probably some point uh, where his health just deteriorates, where it's unlikely he's going to be able to physically continue. Uh, but I think, you know, that so much of pitching is adjustments and, and changing things. Uh, it's hard to know whether a pitcher is going to be able to do that. Yeah, and I will say, and this is uh, not necessarily ap- uh, <clears throat> apropos anything, but... I think a good uh, – an Ibaldo Jimenez who's performing well is good for baseball, I think. Um, I think he's a lot of fun to watch uh, when he's pitching well. Uh, He wasn't for like a year and a half, and he was – when he was walking like four and a half batters per nine, and that was uh, less appealing. But I think that a good Ibaldo Jimenez is a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, and I think, you know, Scott Casimir, I think him coming back is good for baseball. I think these stories are uh, good reminders of – of how much of baseball, especially pitching, uh, hitting maybe a little bit of a different story, but so much of pitching, I think, is is work. Uh, and it's not just raw physical talent, but it's how much time and, and energy a pitcher is willing to put into learning how to pitch and, uh, you know, making the adjustments necessary and studying up on pitchers and, and really just kind of saying, okay, these are the physical skills I have. How can I maximize these? How can I become Tom Malone or... Uh, Bronson Arroyo or, you know, Jamie Moyer, whoever it is, uh, you know, maybe I don't have a 98-mile-an-hour fastball anymore. How can I 
uh, still succeed with what I have. Well, you know, I was actually even just looking back uh, this past week over um, uh, Pedro Martinez's velocity numbers, uh, such as we have yeah. have them from the late 90s or maybe the early 2000s, uh, the the uh, Baseball Info Solutions data, the BIS data, and uh, he was uh, he was sitting at 90 at, at that point, and he was still getting a lot of batters out. Yeah, I think the end of his career, Pedro, was, you know, I remember him consistently sitting in the, the high 80s and just killing people with his changeup. Uh, you know, and it was basically a one-pitch guy at that point. I mean, he threw a four-seam fastball up in the zone that gave up a lot of home runs, but his changeup was still so good that he could get batters out. And I think, uh, you know, we've seen a decent amount of pitchers uh, kind of go through that transformation and say, okay, fine, I don't throw nearly as hard as I used to, but I'm going to learn a new pitch or I'm going to pitch a new way. And they maintain success even though their entire skill set changes. Um, also on the topic of the, the playoff odds, I, I'm curious about this, uh, an idea, uh, or what, what your thoughts are, and, and this may not be so rigorous, this may be more of um, a conceptual in nature, but the, the, the difference is if you observed any um, between uh, how fans are likely to perceive a team's playoff chances versus what uh, empirically that team's playoff chances are. Uh, recently I've noticed this with regard to Kansas City. Um, there seems to be a certain sense of optimism around the Royals, uh, or a sense that uh, you know that, that, that they're on the outskirts, but they still have a chance. I think in real reality, it's below two percent or something like this. Um, uh, of course, they, they've had some dramatic wins, which probably serves to um, to, to emphasize that. But uh, so the point is that that uh, not just Royals fans, but the uh, media generally seems to have a, uh, quite a bit of optimism about the Royals, whereas for a while now uh, their playoff odds have been, um, you know, five percent or lower. And I'm curious if, if not necessarily that example, if another, uh, if you've seen sort of a, a disparity, if you've observed disparities between a team's playoff odds, again empirically or you know as simulated, uh, uh, versus what the perception of that team's chances are. Yeah, I think that basically what we've seen uh, is that people have not adopted to the structural changes that baseball has made. So I think the games back column has almost become a little bit tyrannical. I mean, like, the, the people have just looked at the number of games back for 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it is, and that gave you a decent idea of how well a team had a chance of making the playoffs. Uh, the problem is, you know, back in, like, when the two-division era or before the wild card or even when there was just one wild card, uh, you know, if you said, okay, I'm three games back of a, this playoff spot, uh, you know, there probably weren't uh, a whole lot of teams in that same general range. It probably wasn't this big cluster. Now with two wild cards, what we're seeing is a huge clustering effect where a bunch of teams are all kind of in that same general range fighting for a couple of spots. And I think someone in the uh, in some thread I wrote last week uh, made some comment. It might have been on Twitter. Uh, so I can't remember exactly where I saw it, but someone made a comment that Royals fans uh, – at least the ones who understood playoff odds were trying to convince their fellow brethren uh, with a with a phrase. It's it's not the uh, distance that they have to go; it's the traffic. And I think that's actually a pretty good analogy, right? Is like you might only be uh, a mile from your destination, but if the cars aren't moving or if there's 400 cars in front of you, you're probably not getting there before any of them. Uh, there's no chance for you to pass them if everyone's at a standstill. And so I think that's kind of what we have with the wild card now is with this tremendous amount of traffic where the Royals might only be three and a half games out, but three and a half games out with four teams to pass, very difficult. Yeah, and it, it should be noted, uh, not every listener will notice, is that you are preoccupied with traffic. I know uh, we saw each other in Washington, D.C. recently, 
and uh, you immediately denounced the city on, on the basis of the traffic uh, coming back from a Baltimore Orioles game. You, you don't care for the, traffic. The tra- I, I, I hate traffic. It's one of the reasons I love where I live, because it just doesn't exist here. It's awesome. Well, there are other places for traffic. The, I, I suppose you also have to like your town, because some places there are no traffic. Like the middle of the desert, there's no traffic, uh, but it's because it's yeah. inhabitable by humans. <laughs> right. My ha- my town, habitable and uh, and still no traffic. It, okay. it's maybe not as habitable as some. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I have only grocery store, Greer Cheese. I don't have a... Crowfar or whatever you called him. Carrefour, yeah. Carrefour, no, no, it's not like a fancy place. No, no, Carrefour is a local uh, market here. It's not, it's not fancy. Uh, Okay, well, you'd be even uh, maybe not surprised to know there aren't that many local markets around here either. Oh, okay. Well, (laughs) all right, yeah. Well, um, well, so for you, if you were to calculate ideal places to live, uh, I mean, besides divorced from. you know your own present considerations. Would it, would it would the equation involve? Uh, it would involve traffic, I assume, and then whatever would lead to yeah. habitability. Yeah, I think uh, number one variable would be distance from you. So as far <laughs> as far away as I can get as possible. Well, I've uh, helped I've helped that equation for you for right now. So basically, yeah, all right. the United States. My life has improved dramatically <laughs> in the last week. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think for me the habitability uh, is basically some factor of proximity to uh, family or friends or people with which we have some kind of relationship with and, and want to continue in relationship, uh, weather, <laughs> uh, cost of living, uh, traffic, um, you know, those are probably the big ones. Everything else kind of fits in there. Do you think people sometimes, um, I, I think sometimes even rational people, or people I would say whom I regard otherwise as rational, don't necessarily, when it comes to actually like like what we're talking about now, like um, like very practical issues like figuring out where to live or even within the yeah. city in which you're living, you know, to figure out where in that part of town or just life decisions. I feel like uh, they don't necessarily apply that same amount of rigor to life decisions. Yeah, I think I'm, this is probably going to get me in trouble and I'm going to yell that in the comments thread, but I'll continue anyway. Uh, <laughs> I think people who live in giant metropolitan areas and don't have to for their jobs are a little bit crazy. Like I think if you're if you're paying the city premium, uh, of, you know, living in Manhattan and you have to pay, you know, whatever it is, uh, $4,000 a month rent for a studio apartment and, you know, you're a waiter or, you know, n- nothing against waiters, but you're some kind of career that doesn't require you to live in Manhattan. You're paying such a giant tax uh, in order to have the benefits of living in that kind of city uh, where if you, you know, went and did your career in some other city, uh, you could eventually save so much money that you could just buy all those things you got uh, from living in Manhattan anyway, and you could travel to all these places and have fun. I think like the the metropolitan tax that comes from uh, living in a in a huge city is so high that I I have no desire to ever pay it unless I am forced to. I suppose people that are responding to a certain sense of romance though at that point, right? Which or prestige, which which has depending on the person, the individual could have some value. It could, but I think this gets back to the rational thing, right? Like, I've talked to people who say, like, I could never live in the South because I like access to, like, good organic local food, and I like to be able to eat at all these creative restaurants, and I'm like, yeah, but you're paying an extra $40,000 a year in living expenses in order to live there. Do you have any idea what kind of, you know, culinary trip you could take for $40,000? You could fly all over the world and eat at the best restaurants in the world on, like, a monthly basis. Uh, and, you know, they're like, oh, I really like having this deli around the corner because it has this really great sandwich, and you're paying, like, $50 a sandwich once you factor in the cost of living. 
Well, and I think you would suggest to that person they should go live in Asheville. Yes, I absolutely. Asheville would be a, a, a kind of a perfect blend of uh, low cost of living, but still kind of all the the uh, things that people like about Portland or Austin or uh, Brooklyn or any of these types of cities. Okay, uh, uh, let's return to, to the sport, um, which is our major concern. Uh, uh, your choice. Let's right be now. honest. All of our listeners have turned off the podcast at this point. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, your this will be a choose. Uh, Dave Cameron choose his own podcast topic. Uh, we can either discuss uh, the offense, uh, offense, defense metrics that we not necessarily. Uh, I mean, they've been at the site, but we you introduced them sort of exclusively or or specifically last week. Or uh, Josh Donaldson uh, MVP MVP award. Which one is your? T- well, you know what? I'm actually going to choose for well, you because you, you were just discussing with John Heyman. Uh, the uh, the, uh, the idea of Josh Donaldson MVP, or perhaps they're the same topic. Right, I think they are the same topic. I think the concept of these uh, the Josh Donaldson Miguel Cabrera disparity basically comes down to the offense defense measurements. Because Miguel Cabrera is um, either the first or second best offensive player in the majors and also the American League, um, but his defense, so far as we could tell, is probably hurting his team to the tune of one or one and a half wins per season. Yeah, I mean, I think that's basically the, the conversation. I mean, before we, right as we started podcasting, I was having this discussion with Heyman and then Danny Nobler of CBS, and I actually don't even know what they've said because we started podcasting and I stopped looking at Twitter. Um, but essentially the argument from uh, people who don't believe in war or who distrust the defensive metrics is that the gap between the two is so large offensively that there's no amount of reasonable defensive uh, performance that can make up the gap. Uh, but I think it's interesting, if you actually look at Cabrera and Donaldson side-by-side side in terms of offensive runs created, which is, you know, this new offense stat, which is basically we just took batting and base running and added them together. Uh, um, so you have, like, total offensive value above average from a player. The gap between Cabrera and Donaldson is 25 runs. And, you know, 25 runs is a significant gap, two and a half wins, basically. Uh, there's no question Cabrera has been much, much better at the plate. But to suggest that the difference between a good, above-average defensive third baseman, Donaldson's not Evan Longoria or Manny Machado, but he's a good quality defensive third baseman, and the worst defensive third baseman in baseball, a guy who wasn't even playing the position several years ago because he was moved off the position earlier in his career, can't be 25 runs over the course of a season, like that's unfathomable and unreasonable, uh, doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. I think if you actually look at the number of plays available to make and the proportion of plays different defenders make. Uh, the idea that, you know, the difference between a good and bad defender at a position has to be less than 20 runs um, isn't really that defensible. You could argue that maybe the true talent levels between those guys uh, can't be much larger than 25 or 30 runs, and you know, over you know the course of many years, you won't sustain that big a gap. But there's clearly uh, enough plays throughout the season for a hitter who is 25 runs worse than, a, than a, another hitter to make up those runs on defense. Uh, you know, whether we believe that Donaldson has definitely done that or not is up for discussion, but to say that it's not possible, I think, is just wrong. Well, here's a thought experiment. <clears throat> Do you think that if uh, the Tigers were to have played Miguel Cabrera at shortstop for the entire season and, right. yeah. and um, you know, Miguel Cabrera would make the plays that he could theoretically make at shortstop, right. which is some of them because some of the balls would be hit to him, and he's not entirely immobile, so, you know, he would move left and right, he would move forward. He'd make right. some of the plays. Yep. But he would probably be, well, what? If he's like a negative 10 or 15 third baseman, he'd probably be about a negative 20 or 25 shortstop. Is that is that about right? 
he, I think he'd be worse than that because I don't think it goes linearly. I think uh, <laughs> if you take a if you take a player who doesn't belong at the position, he would break the numbers. So I think uh, you put Miguel Cabrera at shortstop. Negative fifty is in play. Really? Okay. Wow. Wow. That's aggressive. You're being yeah. aggressive, Dave Cameron. I, I think the the reality is that there is a, a a nonlinear penalty to putting a player at a position he can't physically play. <laughs> uh, the, they would, you know, the number of double plays the Tigers turned would like go down dramatically. Uh, there would just be huge, huge differences uh, in in ways that Cabrera just physically couldn't handle the position. Okay, but so so but in meanwhile, well, let's let's say he's having the same exact offensive season. Um, do you think that yeah. the sort of public perception of Cabrera remains the same at that point? Um, it's a good question, right? So, like, I think probably. Well, I hey, think wait a second. That's that's really sweet of you. So to say, wait, that's sweet of you to say immediately that it's a good question. I appreciate. Yeah. I just want to say I appreciate that right yeah. there. Right. Well, you know, savor that compliment. You won't give any more. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think you know we've seen. Um, some really atrocious fielders, uh, especially over the last 10 or 15 years. King Griffey Jr., when he was in Cincinnati at the end of his career, playing center field was maybe as bad as, as anyone could possibly be in the outfield. He should have been a DH. Uh, you know, putting him in a corner would have been a stretch, but the Reds kept rolling him out in center field, and he couldn't catch anything. <laughs> and the, uh, I think, you know, based on UZR, he had some, like, negative 35 seasons or something like that. Uh, you know, I think we've seen that, you know, at that time, no one was, besides the people who really look at these metrics, was really killing Griffey's defense. It's the kind of thing that you have to watch on a daily basis in order to, uh, you know, really see how bad a guy is. And I think, you know, most fans don't watch their game, their team's games every single day, and they certainly aren't watching uh, defensive range and defensive position and those kinds of things all that closely. I think it's just the kind of thing that goes under the radar. And I think if you put Miguel Cabrera at shortstop, uh, everyone who owns him in fantasy would be talking about how amazing he is and he's winning their league for them and, uh, you know, people would be calculating his value relative to other, the offense of other shortstops and, you know, people would still consider Miguel Cabrera uh, a super valuable player even though he would almost certainly be less valuable at shortstop than he is at third base. All right. And would he still win the MVP, do you suppose? I think so. I think uh, I, it depends on how embarrassing the defense was. I mean, if there was, you know, cases where he had balls roll between his legs and uh, in the ninth inning of critical games and people saw, you know, in really big spots just how harmful bad defense can be, maybe not. But I think uh, in general people don't pay as much attention to defense and they just any runs that were that were lost from his lack of range would just be blamed on the pitchers. How did how does a player like Josh Johnson happen? Um, he, in as much as he was uh, what a backup, I mean he was a backup catcher as recently as a, a year ago or a year and a half ago, and is now an MVP candidate. I mean that's not like that's not like a very normal trajectory. No, yeah, he's. Uh, I mean he's never going to do this again, most likely. Like this is not Josh Donaldson's true talent level. And this is one of the things that I was just uh, you know arguing about with Danny Nobler before we started podcasting. Is you know several writers, including Nobler, have put forth this idea of. If, if the A's could trade Josh Donaldson for Miguel Cabrera straight up, they would absolutely do it in a heartbeat. And of course they would, because this is, uh, a monstrous fluke season, uh, you know, fluke being, and I don't think he'll do it again, not necessarily that it wasn't deserved. Um, but this is a, a once in a lifetime kind of season for Josh Donaldson. He's probably an above average to good player who's had the year of a lifetime. Um, and, you know, how it's happened, I think, uh, is a little bit of a mystery. I mean, Chili Davis is apparently a beloved hitting coach in Oakland, and a lot of people give him a lot of credit. 
um, for working with guys like Donaldson. Donaldson's basically revamped his entire hitting approach, has stopped swinging at pitches out of the strike zone, but other guys have stopped swinging at pitches out of the strike zone and they haven't turned an MVP candidate. So how Donaldson did this is a little, still a little bit of a mystery. Uh, right, and he's also become um, – I mean, you mentioned you think he's an above-average uh, third baseman. That's also something that uh, that he's started doing of late as well, I mean, playing third base. Yeah, right. He was basically converted to third base uh, full-time last year. He had, uh, you know, spent a decent amount of time catching in the minors, but no one really liked his defense behind the plate. He was always kind of projected as a guy to move off of catching. Uh, so he'd played third base before, but he kind of became like a, a full-time third baseman uh, in the second half last year, I think he caught his last game in August, and he basically took over as the A's starting third baseman down the stretch. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, he's more athletic than you'd expect for a former catcher. He actually moves pretty well side to side. He's obviously got a very strong arm. Uh, you know, he's got all the tools uh, to, to play a quality third base. Um, you know, he's not a former shortstop like Machado or, uh, you know, a guy who could have played shortstop like Evan Longoria. Um, but I think for his physique and for his physical skills, third base is a perfect match. Now, um, I could have started off with this question, but I'll instead I'll end with this question or, or more or less end with this question. Uh, if you were to hypothetically talk to someone who hadn't watched a lot of baseball over the last week, um, say a colleague of yours, uh, what would what what are the key points uh, you'd bring to their attention to to get them up uh, up to speed as it were uh, uh, so far as the rest of the season's concerned? Uh, well, I think the big stories of the last week are that the sky is falling in Texas. Uh, the Rangers have for the second consecutive year kind of fallen apart down the stretch. Uh, the A's have clinched the AL West, and now uh, the Rangers aren't even in a uh, wild card position. Uh, so there's a chance that Ron Washington and uh, you know, if you believe some columnists in Texas, uh, John Daniels might be in trouble, and uh, you know there could be some some fallout for the Rangers' second uh, consecutive disappointing finish to the year. Um, so I think that's probably been one of the driving stories. Uh, and then I think you know, unfortunately, in a lot of these uh, divisions, the race is basically over. I mean, Atlanta and and Boston and Oakland have already clinched. I think the Dodgers, yeah, the Dodgers did as well by jumping in a pool. Uh, which you may or may not heard of. So basically four division races are, are completely done. Uh, so all we have left is the American League Central, which is basically done. Detroit's had that one locked up uh, unofficially for quite a while. And the NL Central, in which all three teams racing for the division are going to make the playoffs in some way. So uh, as much as I like the two wild card format and I like the um, some of the intrigue it's provided, I think the the unfortunate reality right now is there's not a lot of drama left in baseball. Uh, you know, the second wild card in the American League between Cleveland and Texas is kind of an interesting race, and and to see whether Cincinnati or Pittsburgh can catch up with St. Louis uh, in the NL Central is kind of interesting. But uh, by and large, uh, we kind of know who's in the playoffs right now. Right, but that that may not necessarily be a fault of the system. I, I mean, even even in a perfectly designed system, that's going to happen some years. Yeah, right. I mean, there's not. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there's just separation between the good teams and the bad teams, and this year there just aren't that many mediocre teams. So I mean, there's a few, but they're so mediocre that they they aren't quite good enough to uh, keep up with the good teams. So there's not like a a large swath of teams around that 88 to 92 win mark all fighting for a playoff spot. There's a deep bunch of teams in the 80 to 85 win mark who just aren't quite good enough. Yeah, right. It does. I, I was sort of noting that it seems like. Uh, 89 wins is going to get an American League team into the uh, wild card playoff game, and that's going to be at this point. That's looking like uh, like Tampa Bay and Cleveland. Yeah. Um, yeah, Cleveland yeah. Is, is likely to capture the second wild card spot, primarily thanks to this uh, 
the super easy schedule that they have remaining. I mean, you know, like, this doesn't discredit what they've done. They played a harder schedule earlier in the year, which is why they have an easy schedule now. Uh, but I think the, the Indians have to be the favorite to win that second wild card spot because I think they play some, like, Brooklyn Little League team next week. Yeah, well, that's, that's pretty exciting, right? Uh, have Cleveland back. I mean, this is, uh, um, I guess we consider it a success, or at least from an, a narrative point of view, when teams um, that haven't been around recently in, in playoff discussion to revisit it. I mean, certainly Pittsburgh is the is the main team so far as that's concerned. Uh, and, and, of course, Oakland, which just given their payroll, uh, it's always nice to see them around. But Cleveland, uh, Cleveland is uh, very much in the picture. And uh, it would seem as though that they're uh, well-situated to make some sort of playoff run given the, the, the quality of their, uh, their pitching. Yeah, I think the Indians are kind of interesting this year. Uh, I think... So the question is going to be, uh, how much of the surprising performances can we actually expect to continue? So it's not just Casimir and the rebirth of, of, uh, you know, uh, Ubaldo Jimenez and the emergence of Kluber and, and Danny Salazar. Uh, their offense is being carried by Jan Gomes and Ryan Rayburn. Which, you know, uh, I, I don't think that's going to last in the playoffs. At the same time, as Drupal Cabrera has had a really terrible year and could potentially be expected to perform better down the stretch than he has. So, you know, there's like, the Indians are a team full of regression, but it's going both directions. And, uh, you know, whether Cabrera can hit better uh, in time to offset the fact that Jan Gomes and Ryan Rayburn are not the two best players in the American League uh, remains to be seen. I'm probably not going to bet on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at that Jan Gomes. Three and a half wins uh, this far. It's not... like a part-time catcher, yeah. Yeah, right. And I, I think uh, if I'm a pretty decent, I mean, the number, his numbers are excellent, but I just uh, watching him, he seems to be a pretty decent um uh, defensive catcher as well. Yeah, it was one of those things. He has a strong arm. He's good at throwing. He was never considered a great defender. Uh, he played all over the field. He's kind of like a utility guy who also caught um, in Toronto. But uh, Cleveland, you know, I don't think they care as much about catcher defense as some other organizations. Obviously, they've had Carlos Santana behind the plate for a while, and he's kind of atrocious. Uh, Gomes, I think they're more willing to live with his uh, maybe, you know, pitch handling, uh, pitch framing deficiencies compared to, you know, a, a pure defensive guy who can just, you know, really handle the staff because they want to get Jan Gomes' bat in the lineup, which is probably not a phrase I thought I would ever say. <laughs> All right, well, it's the last you'll, you'll have to utter uh, on this edition of Fangraphs Audio um, because uh, you've entirely fulfilled your obligation to same. So, uh, but, th- but thank you. Thank you, Dave Cameron. Thanks, and uh, I'm glad that your uh, relocation to France went as well as it could. Yeah, yeah. It, it went about as well. Well, I'll tell you about all the uh, the miserable parts about it when we're off there. <laughs> that has been uh, Dave Karen, managing editor, though of uh, Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli, uh, and this has been an international edition of Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.